Just need to get out of here. Please, Madame Belle, do not run! But I really need to go! The socks were about to sing to you the song of how they like being put on feet and stepped on. I really just need a moment alone. Oh, I have to get away. Where's the bathroom in this place? Oh, where is it? Where is it? Oh, this place is like a maze. Oh, there it is. Oh, finally. I have a moment to myself, away from the haunted castle and those strange contraptions. Welcome to the bathroom, <gasps> madame! It is I, Crapier, your loyal servant! Oh, God! Please, do not be alarmed! Just come over here and shit in my oh, mouth! Oh, God, there's water everywhere! There's nowhere safe in here! Why are you alarmed? I like it this way! I was a fecal filiac before I became a toilet! Oh, I'm in hell! fantasy fans and welcome to swords and satire the podcast where we turn low fantasy into high art i'm your dungeon manager jamie mokel here with my beautiful co-hosts oh that's nice bell means beauty oh yeah <laughs> incredible no no we didn't watch the incredibles oh <laughs> i'm chelsea hollowell a trusty steed who just wants to graze in the grass and in on a warm day and i don't want to have to contend with any wolves or snow who you and us all i feel like it's yeah. not a lot to ask no but it just keeps happening yeah 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 and i'm jack olander a living chandelier that's afraid of heights each of my eyes <laughs> Each of the little glass dangly bits is an eye forced to stare down at the fall that awaits me. Oh, God. Fuck. That, is, that is horrifying. I know. That is only slightly less bad than the than the living toilet servant that has to exist in this household. <laughs> yeah. That's okay. That was his title before he became shape-changed also. Ballet. <laughs> <laughs> Jabbed on him. All right. Well, since we're talking about animate household objects, obviously this week we're going to be discussing Beauty and the Beast, not the Disney classic animated film, but the Disney remake from 2017. Yeah, we're going to be doing a whole series of these. We started with Maleficent and kind of with Red Riding Hood. It's not Disney, but it's a you know, live-action remake of a classic folktale, so. Also, I mean, Maleficent's not exactly... I mean, I guess it's a reimagining more than a... This is, like, just a straight recreation of the Disney movie. That's true. Like, I mean, we'd be doing, like, Milan and, well, Hunchback of Notre Dame when it comes out, all of Eventually, us. we'll do all those. Yeah. And I am horrified 
that we're going to be covering these movies. Oh, yeah. And I have to interject one more time. You know we're going to be doing the remake of Aladdin at some point, too. Well, I mean, you've never had a friend quite like me, so <laughs> that is accurate. So before we get into it, Beauty and the Beast 2017 was directed by Bill Condon. It stars Emma Watson, Dan Stevens, Luke Evans, Josh Gad, Emma Thompson, uh, Sir Ian McKellen, and a variety of other. Oh, 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 Obi-Wan Kenobi himself, Ewan McGregor. That's right. And a bunch of other people. <laughs> but now that we have that out of the way, I think Chelsea has got a summary ready to go. That's right. Here's your summary for Beauty and the Beast. 2017. So this is a movie about an artistic and inventor family. The daughter, Belle, and her father, Maurice. and how people who are strange creatives don't fit in with the rest of society. <laughs> that sounds familiar. There's also some kind of subplot about true love and true love's kiss having healing powers, the obligatory Disney messages. Yeah, but we've seen all that before. <laughs> Let me learn more about Belle's tragic backstory and the loss of her mother. <laughs> so Belle is a creative inventor and innovator and she is i thought she was just a reader (laughs) it shows her inventing uh, a washing machine oh with the mule yeah huh okay fair enough Mm, maybe she learned about it in a book but she truly longs for adventure and after her father loses his way on the way to a inventor convention or a fair of some type. Or an invention, as it were. Right. Inventicon? He is attacked by wolves, finds his way to this haunted, creepy castle. He's going to pick a rose for his daughter and is accosted by some beast and locked away. The horse, the trusty horse, Philippe, that lives with the family. I guess you could say he belongs to them, but really he's a member of the family. I think he works for the family. Yeah, let's say he works for the family. You know, family. he's paid in oats. Yeah. He's loyal, however. He is, lo- he is loyal to a fault, I would say. Yes, recklessly. He comes back, and Belle knows that something's wrong with her father, so she asks the horse to take her to where her father was and this and horse he says nay <laughs> by the nine this horse apparently understands uh english pretty well uh which does... you mean you mean french right french because <laughs> <laughs> this movie ta- this movie takes place in france as you can tell from all the english uh, accents by all of the english actors doing english accents except for you and mcgregor doing a very caricature French accent? Terrible. Beautiful and terrible. She finds her way to the castle with Philippe's help. This is Belle, of course. She finds her father Maurice locked away in the castle. She just keeps going up until she finds him, I guess, because it's this maze-like structure, but she's able to find him pretty quickly. She's got dad senses. I guess so. I'm glad I didn't say daddy senses. She tries to free him. (laughs) The beast accosts her. She basically 
trades places with her father so he can be free. Her father goes back to the village and tries to get people to go search for her. That's where Gaston and LeFou, his trusty sidekick, are singing about how great Gaston is. I mean, nobody fights like him. <laughs> nobody writes like him, but that's probably for the better. Right. Nobody wears tights like him. Nobody hangs lights like him either. Nobody shites like him. <laughs> <laughs> Gaston agrees to help Maurice try to find his daughter, even though they think he's basically a raving lunatic talking about a beast in a haunted castle. Uh, because he wants to marry Belle, and he thinks that Maurice might be his future father-in-law, and so he wants to help him out. Get in good with Dad. You know how it is. Glad I didn't say get in good with Daddy. While all of that is going on, Belle is getting to know the beast a little bit better, and all of the unholy objects in the castle that have been given life. It's okay. They love to serve. Oh my god. They live to serve. They really literally. do. They used to be servants of the prince, who is now the beast, and they were all changed by an enchantress after she was pissed off that the prince didn't give her like a cup of water years years in the past <laughs> was it I don't, I don't remember why she was mad it was just like she wanted dot to, dot disrespect yeah <laughs> she wanted to be warm away from the storm didn't mean to rhyme there but it it happened i mean this is a disney movie rhyming's okay so they spend a lot of problematic days and weeks together she's Apparently falling in love with him, but she's a prisoner, so it's basically just Stockholm Syndrome. I was going to say, like, surely surely, better analysts than us have pointed out in the past that Beauty and the Beast is just a story of Stockholm Syndrome. Yeah, it's pretty much a given at this point. I'm not bringing up anything new there. Just calling it like it is. So there's a lot of new convoluted <laughs> scenes with Gaston. LeFou and Maurice when they're going to search for Belle and trying to find the castle, but it's like an enchanted place, so they're having trouble finding it. This live-action version is like 45 minutes longer than the original, so... Most of it didn't need to be there. So... Some could argue that this movie did not need to exist, but... Basically, they fucking try to kill Maurice. He finds his way back to town with the help of Agatha, who's like a local beggar and she lives in the woods and she nurses him back to health. That Gaston just says that Maurice is lying, that he didn't try to kill him and he has him locked away. Belle comes back because she sees her father was in trouble with a magic mirror that the beast had. And this was after they had like gotten all dressed up and had a ball together. And what a ball they had <laughs> dancing one half of a dance. Yeah. Before Belle pieces out. And to go save her dad. And Beast is like, eh, sure, whatever. You're my prisoner, but we're we're over that whole thing now, right? Gaston has her locked away, too, for claiming that they shouldn't hurt the Beast. He leads an angry mob singing all the way to the <laughs> castle. They break through. The furniture servants wage a battle against all the intruders. Gaston finds his way up to the towers. 
and finds the beast and shoots him in the back because he's, you know, a hero. <laughs> you know, like a hero does. <laughs> the beast has given up because he thought Belle had left him forever and he had fallen in love with her, but she comes back and he eventually makes his way across the castle roof to her, very treacherous, and they embrace, but then Gaston shoots him again. He he can't stand being second fiddle to anyone. Mm -mm. And right as the beast is going to die, the last petal is falling on the rose that's like the magical object that is kind of like their timekeeper for how much time they have left before all of the servants actually turn into non-sentient furniture. Yeah, it's, it's our obligatory countdown clock that creates tension, question mark, for the characters in the movie. Yeah, so they, like, drag out this scene super long. Finally, Emma Watson says that she loves the Beast, and the Enchantress is somehow in the room, and she undoes everything. <laughs> That'll do, Belle. Yeah. And uh, then they are all back to human form and happy again. And Belle, I guess, marries the prince? It probably isn't going to last. Their relationship was built on, like, a, a weird shared trauma. I mean, I, I don't know. Yeah, and so in the end, she sacrifices her dreams and desires for adventure and creative fulfillment for a gilded cage and riches. I mean, I guess, but, like, with the title of princess or queen, I mean, she's going to have the ability to just do whatever she wants, right? No. Oh, okay, well. It comes with we a go. lot of responsibility, and you can basically never really do anything for yourself after that. But what about when you just have servants who love to serve you and will do whatever you want without ever complaining, no matter how poorly you treat them? Yeah, we can get into that. <laughs> <laughs> so that's basically it for your summary. All right, well, then why don't we head into the delve? Welcome to The Delve, where we venture deep into the themes, scenes, lore, and messages of Beauty and the Beast. All right, guys, I have been dying to ask you this question since we watched the movie. It's fucking weird that Belle drinks out of Chip, right? Yeah. And how Mrs. Potts has like an orgasm when they pour hot water into her. She certainly is giving the oh face. And then she I hate pours. That I just said that. <laughs> then she pours tea into her son, and then Belle, a human, drinks out of her son's head. It's so disturbing. And like, what is Belle actually touching when she's holding Lumiere, the can uh, candelabra? Dick. She's, got, <laughs> she's grabbing him by the dick. You would think torso, right? Because like the long body. Nope. He turned into a penis and, <laughs> and a candelabra arm. Actually, we just got back a survey. Turns out 100% of people thought it was a dick. Oh, good. Phew. Yes. I'm nobody glad, thought it was a torso. I'm glad nobody was confused about that. Even for a second. So, yeah, actually, what I want to talk about first is the capitalist myth 
of the happy and diligent servant who is just so gosh darn happy to do whatever the upper classes want them to do. They're just going to sing songs and be so glad no matter what horrible abuses they go through. Yeah. Uh, basically Cogsworth, the talking clock and Lumiere's best friend sings. Played by Sir Ian McKellen. Yeah. Sings in one song. We live to serve, and that's when we're the happiest, or something like that. Yes, I mean, exactly. I, those aren't the exact lines of the song, but that's the message. And I would just like to reiterate the beast, when he was a prince, was a tyrant who treated his servants terribly, and yet they take on the blame for his poor behavior. They're like, oh, well, it's our fault. We should have protected him. It's like, okay, I get that feeling but there's also accountability we have to get into yeah for sure they mentioned that when we get to see the beast's tragic backstory in the movie we see as a kid he lost his mother and they the servants were like oh and then he was raised by his father to be just like him we should have stepped in it's like wasn't the dad like the king you're gonna try and raise the kid in opposition of the king. I mean, I get where you're coming from. It's a good it's a good noble cause, I suppose. Try and help this devastated kid not be turned into a monster by his monstrous father. <laughs> sure. But ironically, he physically became a monster. But yeah, you know, that's that's how it went. <laughs> yeah, the servants were saying they basically deserved their fate because they didn't prevent him from becoming a tyrant. Yeah, I mean, that's ridiculous. It's not their fault. I mean, if we're talking about power dynamics, they are very, like, they're in the bottom rung in terms of actually wielding any power in that situation. Yeah, but at the end of the day, people are going to be influenced by the people who they look up to. And they will emulate the people who are closer to them in class or power dynamic. So... The prince is not going to look at the servants and be like, oh, yes, these are, you know, fine examples of how to be. He's going to see his father treating them like garbage and go, OK, well, this is how I'm in the upper class. This is how I'm going to behave. Yeah. I mean, literally, he was a prince yeah. of a kingdom, a giant kingdom. Apparently, his castle was impressive. And yes, to go on that massive French castle, I mean, that works with like French nobilities egregious spending yes when it comes to building palaces that's true also i mean when does this movie take place we're not that far out from some beheadings coming soon right like bell might very well be a tragic hero in the end so they reference that they do it's, oh they did they made they they alluded to it when lumiere is I believe it's in the Be Our Guest song. He's like, but hey, it's France. And then he pulls down a meat cleaver and cuts a piece of food apart. That's right. And oh. I was just like, that's a guillotine reference. I know that anywhere. So is there going to be a living guillotine named Guy Latine? <laughs> that's hype. That's in the Dark Souls remake you mentioned. Come, please put your neck into my stocks and I will chop off your head. Yeah. It is still okay to do French accents and not be considered problematic. Yeah. The servants were gleefully 
happy to serve Bell at a dis- on a disturbing level. Oh, it yeah. seemed like they were they were giddy and that's all they felt like their only purpose in life was. But um I don't want to overlook the aesthetics comment that Jack just brought up either. Sure. Because I think that's really interesting. The castle did look really cool. It had totally. all these like twisting ropey lines that almost as if vines had covered staircases and all the walls but then they had turned to stone that's kind of the aesthetic that it looked like yeah and like as the rose the enchanted rose crumbles the castle breaks and and shatters in places and i I was saying while we were watching the movie it reminded me of like bloodborne or dark souls which I know I end, I bring up a lot on this show, but yeah. I mean, the aesthetic was right there. It's this dark, creepy, winding castle. I'm like, yeah, I could totally like hunt a demon through there. Yeah. It's just been topical recently. Yeah. I mean, it's a cursed castle, which is gigantic. Gigormous even. Yeah, it is gigormous. I think you're right, actually. A beast is the ruler of this place, which has trapped you in its castle. And then all the enchanted furniture is around. It's a little like Castlevania. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. man. As well. I'm into it. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah, the the aesthetic was very cool. Yeah. And I mean, like Dark Souls, it's kind of like a dying castle faded to faded to crumbled apart. Yeah. You know? So, I mean, the comparison is there. And we can talk about that rose a little bit, too, if you're down. Yeah, absolutely. Let's talk about the symbolism of the rose. Yeah, so the curse, right? The curse is embodied in this rose that the enchantress brought along on the day that she decided she didn't like the prince, right? Nobody does, except for his loyal servants. Apparently. Mm -hmm. This was very reminiscent of a lot of different european mythologies right in several european mythologies like greek and norse there are tales where gods come down in the form of humans yes to test the to test the moral fiber of humanity right yeah i i wrote i also had a note about how it reminded me about classic folklore like fae coming in disguise or a goddess or something like that yeah exactly and just for the purpose of being like i want to see what they're gonna do right right (laughs) because the enchantress didn't need water are they polite do they have manners (laughs) exactly i will fuck them if they don't have manners i mean in the case of zeus literally whether or not they have manners it's true But the enchantress came and was like, give a glass of water to the unattractive elderly. And she's a young woman, too. So she's put a glamour on herself to deceive the prince. A lie, if you will. It was very Odin of her. (laughs) Yeah. Coming in the form of a a roaming wanderer and asking for hospitality. Although there is the hospitality aspect that we can talk about, too, that where these stories go back to. Exactly, exactly. So she pulls a little bit of a Grimnir. Yeah, yeah. Showing up. And yeah, when she when the beast denies her, she curses the prince to be a monster. And she's like, you are going to be a monster until you can learn inner beauty, right? Which 
I don't know. Maybe it's a self-respect inner beauty he learns that breaks the spell. Well, <laughs> Bell has to fall in love with him for it yeah. to, to break. And then and then Agatha has to be there to I guess reverse witness the spell him. and witness it. Yeah. Yeah. It was interesting because the story made it seem like the beast is the one who needs to learn to see the beauty within, right? Yeah. But Belle is the one who needs to fall in love with him, right? In order to break it. Yeah, and she's not connected to the curse at all. No. Also, the Enchantress cursed all of the servants of the prince just by association, I guess. I wanted to say, I'm glad you brought that up because I I wanted to say that they're like you said, they're all consigned to their master's fate, that the Enchantress is also treating them like they have no personal identity or autonomy. Yeah. They had no choice in this. And and but this goes back to this theme of that the movie is trying to make the audience feel like the servants are somehow at fault for this, which is really fucked up and pisses me off. Yeah, me too. Yeah, I felt like they were supposed to be just like self-blaming in that moment and you were supposed to like sympathize with them more than agree with them. But like if you're a kid, I don't know. I don't know if that's going to land, right? Yeah. Where you see what they're saying and you say, no, that's not true. You're not at blame for this. I don't know how, if a young audience can do do that. I, I can tell the subtle nuances of what they mean. I'm a four-year-old. <laughs> yeah. I understand exactly. complex power dynamics. <laughs> you see, I hear what they're saying, but there are undertones to what they're saying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't know if the undertones are, are strong enough to... Uh, send any other messages than servants should keep in their fucking lane. Yeah, but honestly, this is a remake and it's part of the whole nostalgia age of creating films and TV shows. And so I think it's speaking to an older audience. And so that's yeah, why they totally. included... Then they uh, really could have... Then yeah, they really right. could have like worked in a better uh, rendition of this narrative and and taken out some of the troubling aspects of indentured servitude. I agree, but it's not a retelling; it's a remake, like we mentioned. But I think maybe you have a good point. They made a mistake in not reimagining it. Yeah, they did reimagine several aspects of this film. They added a lot to it. That's true. They kind of, they redid a few scenes, like when LeFou kind of goes back on being on Gaston's side. He's like, hey, yeah, I changed my mind about him. They rewrote that from the original. Yeah, that Rewriting cool. history, as it were. And <laughs> Hey, wait, copyright, copyright. That's hey, 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 Yeah. And Maleficent was a total rewrite as well yeah. so it's not like these live action remakes are afraid to change the original script that's what i was gonna so say they could have. yeah i i wish that they had stuck with more of a maleficent like kind of reimagining but i did want to hear more of what jack had to say with uh what they changed too right well like i mentioned they gave bell and beast both tragic backstories you referenced <laughs> bell's tragic sudden backstory the mom died in the plague when yeah. the father brutally killed uh well okay we didn't get that we didn't get that but yeah. she did die from the plague 
And the father moved away with Belle, right? They had to get out of Paris. The Beast's mom died as well. The Beast's mom died too. Disney hates moms. Yeah. Hates them with a fucking passion. I know. Yes, both of their moms got sick from the plague and had to beat each other to death. And <laughs> That's in the extended director's cut. <laughs> exactly, yeah. that Just like right up until before it was released, it was in there. An hour-long fight scene. That's why Belle and the Beast's face are intertwined. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And they're, exactly. fun fact, both their mothers named Martha. <laughs> yeah. God, no! Oh, oh the tragedy. <laughs> oh, yeah, but those scenes were added. Gaston, the villain, right? He got a lot more humanized in yeah. this version. Not just because he's live action. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he wasn't just a caricature of, like, an oaf. But uh, he also a was. A British oaf. <laughs> he wasn't, and he was. Yeah, it was, uh, it was kind of inconsistent. Right. Yeah. I, I just, actually, I'm glad you mentioned that. I want to talk about that, too, in a minute. But yeah, he starts out as this kind of just nice, like, handsome guy who's just kind of, like, not really landing his advances with Belle. And it's just sort of like they're two puzzle pieces that don't fit together. And Belle is letting him down relatively easy, right? And he's... He's just like kind of a bummed normal Chad, right? <laughs> I liked how he was trying to relate to her, though. That was new. Yeah, yeah, it was. He was trying to say, like, I read, I, I, I've read, read books. <laughs> and yeah, trying to relate to her on something he knows she's interested about. And he isn't just completely self-absorbed i mean he's very self-absorbed but he is he is completely self-absorbed but not, he like kind of knows how to use his charisma to like get on somebody's good side yeah and bell can kind of see through it yeah and th it takes a turn for the worst rejection is not something he's good at handling and that's kind of how he starts getting down the villainous spiral she's like i don't want to marry you Gaston, and he's immediately like, oh, LeFou, don't you know the ones who say no are the best ones to get? And LeFou's like, oh, Jesus fucking Christ, Gaston. LeFou <laughs> Le is actually, for the most part, the voice of reason throughout this film for Gaston, but Gaston, being the charming yet witless populist demagogue that he is, is completely oblivious to anything that LeFou has to say. True. It's true, yeah. Gaston doesn't handle rejection well. He's very proud, and he gets very angry yeah, very easily. And he gets impulsive when that happens, and that's definitely what leads to his downward spiral, right? Yeah. Yeah. Especially when he tries to kill Belle's dad. It's not a good look. He's <laughs> a definite representative of toxic masculinity and what it looks like. Definitely. Absolutely. I mean, the thing is... It's like Chelsea was saying, like, the character is so inconsistent. When we first meet him, we almost feel like this is going to be a revision of the classic character, where he's kind of, like, trying to relate to Belle, kind of being charming. Then we get this hard left turn, where he suddenly is, like, having these parties dedicated to praising himself and kind of holding himself up. He's got his name emblazoned on everything, and he's, like, obsessed with 
telling his story and he's got the populace riled up to the point where they literally become willing to commit murder and to abduct or imprison Belle and her father just because Gaston says so. Yeah. I mean, it's this horrible depiction of what happens when a a crowd or a group of people is led by somebody who is charismatic but with no moral core, which is completely irrelevant to anything in recent real-world days, right? <laughs> yeah. Maybe. Yeah, when I think about trying to be charming to people, I also get, like, an equal amount of bloodlust. <laughs> That's just me. That's just me. It's very Gaston of you. Yeah. I mean, also, Jack, you used to eat four dozen eggs. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's another thing. Gaston leeches the resources of the village. Yeah, that's right. I mean, okay. you used to eat four dozen eggs every morning. That's just breakfast. Yeah. <laughs> and then later on, it was five dozen eggs. <laughs> every day, he eats five dozen. Now, I, I will say the town, at least on its surface, doesn't seem to be suffering financially. Or, or what I mean is the populace is not like poorly taken care of no. or they're like that's the problem they don't have any reason to be angry about the beast and they don't have a strong reason to hate Belle and her father maurice just because they're a little strange i understand the historical reference to how people like become outcasts in a community and how they can become convenient scapegoats. But I mean, we see this still very much in the real world today. I yeah, mean, we're talking true. about how any group of outsiders can easily be turned into villains through demagoguery that says that these people are, for whatever reason, unfit to be part of society. They are always like one step away from being victimized in one way or another this in bell's a, case it's quite literal this is a pretty good illustration of how a dominant narrative can affect people's perspective about the world and of their behavior yes definitely that's a good point all right guys before we talk any more about the movie why don't we head to the bounty board You walk through your opulent library, peering at all the fine leather-bound books in your collection, and a gleeful smile creeps across your face, until you remember the curse that has bound you in this place. Still, you think, you'll relieve your sorrow with your favorite story. You go and pull the tome off the shelf, remove the ribbon from its page, and open it. Yet somehow, the words inside are unfamiliar. They say, Bounties? As the winter pall lifts and the seasons begin to change, don't you think it's time to enjoy a good book? And what better way to experience a story than with our favorite format here at Swords and Satire, audio recordings. That's why our show is sponsored in part by Audible, the world's leading provider of audiobooks, spoken word entertainment, and now podcasts, including ours, by the way. 
And if you head to audible.com slash swords right now, you'll be able to start your free 30 day trial of audible and you'll receive an audiobook of your choice that you get to keep even if you can't see your membership. Although I can't imagine why you'd want to because Audible has thousands of titles and programs. And did I mention podcasts like Swords and Satire? After your 30-day trial, it's just $14.95 a month and you'll get a monthly credit for an audiobook that will be yours forever. I love Audible because it helps keep me entertained when I'm sharpening swords, cleaning the moat, or fighting off those pesky invading hordes. I have a library of hundreds of titles from my favorite authors, from J.R.R. Tolkien and Naomi Novik to George Carlin and Jen Kirkman, and I'm always listening to some of the great titles from Audible's extensive collection. And you can start building your own library today. If you don't know what book to start off your collection with, you could grab The Fifth Season by Hugo Award-winning author N.K. Jemisin. It's a complex and gripping dystopian sci-fi epic filled with interesting characters, deep world-building, and cataclysmic events. It's also the first book in Jemison's Broken Earth trilogy, so once you finish book one, you'll be able to start your next month of Audible with the sequel, The Obelisk Gate. So one more time, head to audible.com swords to start your trial, get your first audiobook credit, your free wellness guide, and to browse the thousands of titles in Audible's extensive library of audiobooks, spoken word programs, and oh yeah, podcasts like this one. And now back to the episode. I had one more thing to say about the enchantment aspect of the film. Yeah, yeah, totally. Cool. Right. And I'm sure there's more, but the one more I wanted to get to was True Love's Kiss, like you mentioned. A major theme of the Disney movies, right? Oh, what is True Love's Kiss? (laughs) I've been dreaming. Anyway. You mentioned slightly problematic magical themes in this, right? Yeah. When it came to, like, the servants, right? Being punished for what they did. Right. And a slightly problematic magical theme throughout all Disney movies is the true love's kiss, right? What does it mean? True love is this magical force. And the troubling part is the way people kind of apply it to the real world in themselves, right? Right. Because I think in this movie, the messaging of it is that these two, Belle and the Beast, are like the faded, perfect couple for each other, right? And that's why they are supposed to have fallen in love so quickly, rather than it being like a traumatic event. It's more like a magical compulsion that like, oh, you two are going to fit like those two puzzle pieces so it, it's not going to take very long for you to realize that you're going to be in love, right? At least that was the messaging I That's saw. extremely unethical on the Enchantress's part. Yes. Yes. In fact, there's like a quirky 90s, early 2000s like witch movie with that as the main plot. What was that one called? It was the one where her like mom's cast were oh, like her oh, mom. Oh, 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 you know we're doing that movie this year. Practical magic. Heads up for that movie. Stay tuned. 
<laughs> oh boy. But uh, yeah, I think the yeah the narrative of that is that like Belle and the Beast were just like destined to be perfect for each other. But if that's the case, then what what's the message that the Enchantress is trying to convey here? I don't know. Am I off base with thinking that no. they're su well, supposed to be good for each other? Well, I don't know. It's hard to say because I would read it that the Enchantress set up this curse thinking that it was never going to happen, right? I don't think necessarily that she is going into it like, oh, I'm going to like find this guy his perfect love and that'll teach him. I think it's supposed to be an impossible feat. Like, oh, nobody's going to love this guy. He's a total dickhead. Well, I mean, that is part of the trope too. The the ones that always put the curse on are usually older women who are powerful and they usually never believe in true love. Maleficent. Yeah, yeah. yeah. She's another great example. But the but... problem with, I mean, with Agatha, since they tried to flesh out everyone else's backstory, she never says a word in the entire movie, right? I, no, except for when she's begging on the street in the background. Okay, well, but so we don't get any perspective on her. We don't get any fleshed out backstory for kind of the catalyst for the entire story. Or like insight into why she's always hanging around this one town. It's like we had to fill in the blanks about what happened to Belle and Beast moms, but we didn't fill in the backstory of like, why is the Enchantress going around like fucking with people like this? And like, what's her deal? That would have been a lot more interesting. So I wanted to keep delving into this idea you brought up, Jack, about this whole idea about true love and true love's kiss being problematic within the whole Disney oeuvre. Mm -hmm. And in this story in particular, it's particularly bad, but... Right. I, I thought there was more we could say about that. Well, I think typically in the Disney movies, true love's kiss is supposed to be representing the idea of like soulmates the idea that out there is the one other person that makes up your whole right like you're one half of a whole and they're out there and you're looking for each other right so you're saying that you're a donut hole looking for the donut that you fit into oh yeah you're looking for someone to fill your hole <laughs> <laughs> well i was gonna say that sounds beautiful and delicious but <laughs> <laughs> jelly filled and uh <laughs> some hole, listen some holes are jelly filled some holes are custard filled my goo some holes are covered in maple <laughs> Ooh. now i want a donut jesus no you don't <laughs> no they're always disappointing hey i just want you to know i have sprinkles you should probably tell the other donuts <laughs> <laughs> With a lot of these movies, like if kids are watching them or even like older viewers, the idea that true love can only be shared with a soulmate is damaging. Mm, yes. And that's kind yes. of what I felt like your point was working toward. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah, it's definitely damaging, right? Because in, in Disney, it's very direct saying that there is magic right there are enchantresses there's like physical transformation true love's kiss bringing people back from the dead right mm -hmm. 
to to that point real quick it is kind of like yeah. portrayed as like the purest form of magic right exactly but again i think it's only problematic because they don't distinctly say like oh this exists because it's magic right yeah they they phrase it in such a way that it's like true love it's magical and it's real right and they're they're not to say true love can't be found i would just say mutual love if that's what you were trying to say right where two people love each other right and that could be found with multiple people that happens in real life even one person can love multiple people yeah right? it's true it's and complicated and different for everybody yeah i mean and you can feel love differently towards different people but it's a gross oversimplification of a very complex feeling that does have many facets to it like you're saying we just need some of those compound german words to describe like more complex feelings that we don't have in english yeah i guess so <laughs> I, I it's true i do often feel the constraints of that for sure and i i like the celtic term onamkara which means soul friend uh, rather that. than the idea of soul mate uh, you can have more than one soul friend on Omkara. And that's mm -hmm. somebody who truly understands you on the soul level. And it doesn't have to be a romantic relationship. It could be, but it doesn't have to be. Yeah, you see, that's fantastic. I really like that concept. And that kind of goes back to what you were saying, Jack. You can You can love multiple people and... I like what you said, mutual love. I think that's a better way to understand this concept. That's how I've always seen it. I think it's a much healthier expectation as well that, mm -hmm. that you can develop a relationship over time. And like the movie kind of tries to do more of a relationship over time thing between Belle and the Beast. Like they, but you know, then it falls back into the other, I think kind of troubling trope that the person you love, you're going to hate them when you first meet them. And boy, you're going to be at each other's throats and you're not going to get along at all. And one of you is going to imprison the other one and torture you in horrible ways. And then, gosh darn it, someday you're just going to fall for each other. That's not how I would say most healthy relationships start. Maybe some can develop over time from various forms of either animosity or conflict, but I don't think it should be considered the norm necessarily. Yeah, definitely not. No. And I think what you just described is a very like old fashioned romance novel-y way of looking at love. Like they can't stand each other, but they're drawn to each other. It's like right? Sort of thing. contentious. Yes. And you know what character probably felt that way throughout the film Gaston right he's like Belle doesn't like me but we're destined to be together she'll come around right maybe if I kill her dad <laughs> and that's not that always gets him that's not true love in Bad your uh, definition of it Jack because it's not mutual I like that yeah well I thought Enchanted was kind of headed that direction when we got that you know, she thought she was in love with Edward and that was there. They were they had true love. And then it turns out that 
it wasn't with Edward. It was with Patrick Dempsey. Mr. New York. Hey. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, yeah, I expected it to be that true love can change. It like, you know, I've always interpreted it as mutual love. I love you. You love me sort of thing. We're a happy family. Exactly. And that it's that mutual love that, you know, makes the magic. But I I suppose all this to say, I think the problematic part of it comes from them not clearly defining what true love is within the context of each movie. Right. Right? If they're oh, like, yeah. true love is your fated destiny partner that is literally magical in nature. And then I'd be like, okay, I'm not going to make any assumptions as a little kid that that is going to apply to me, probably, <laughs> right? I'm like, all right, that's just in this world, right? Yeah, I could see how it would, like, you could still suspend your disbelief, but then not see it as a template for what might happen in your own life, yeah. It's true, but they kind of leave it vague in every movie. So it's kind of like, oh, true love's kiss can fix everything. It's magical in nature. And maybe one day you'll find yours. It's like, now, hold on. I fear. What what is true love then? I fear that if they tried to define it, they would just dig themselves into a deeper hole. Well, they just need to listen to Jack, I think. (laughs) Oh, gosh. Yeah. If they defined it way back in like the days of Snow White, it was like, True love is when a man and a woman are both Caucasian. And now, hold on. (laughs) Several red flags right out the gate. One of them is Snow White. I know. Exactly. Yeah, it is several. And the other one is an attractive man who needs no personality. (laughs) Or name. Just Prince Prince Charming. I know. In this movie, we just have Beast. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, but Beast... I like the way they handle Beast because the the whole point of the film is that beauty is on the inside, right? Oh! And I think that's a great message. Oh, right? What the <laughs> hell? But I love that they do that for kind of like both of these characters, right? Belle is a social pariah because she's a woman that thinks incredible. Even to this day, that can make you a pariah, right? <laughs> I, I from what I've heard that is accurate yeah and she's hot so like <laughs> she can't win she's hot and smart she's like a uh kind of a Mary Sue and she still can't win right yeah but Beast he's you know he was rich and he became an asshole <laughs> and but his worth came he's an in intellectual kind of gentle guy he has a lot of problems right he has a lot of problems with anger self-esteem and things like that i just thought it was really nice and interesting to see them go from like the faceless prince charming character i mean we still just call the main guy beast in this yeah but like at least he has a ton of personality and that's the allure of the character right despite his appearance he has a lot of humanity what do you what do you mean despite his appearance and you know <laughs> Dude, the beast. he looks better before he transforms back i i do <laughs> know i agree i agree wholeheartedly you know the beast fucks too he does the beast does fuck. so does the prince at the end when bell they're dancing and bell asks him if he would grow a beard 
He gives her this really sexy growl. <laughs> I did not register that in my mind that Yikes. either of those things happened. That's so funny. He's like, I don't oh, know where I was, he, but I missed the best part of the movie. <laughs> he treats her asking him to grow a beard as like super kinky. <laughs> <laughs> That's Pass. what passed for risque back in the day, you know? <laughs> yeah. Heck yeah. So guys, I want to talk about another major theme of this movie, and that is crime, punishment, and damnation. Okay. Yes. Because we see that the Beast is being punished for the crime of being inhospitable. We mm. see Belle's father being punished by the Beast for the crime of trespassing. Belle stealing then, a rose as well. Stealing mm -hmm. the rose and, and trespassing. Bell then commutes her father's sentence by taking his place in prison. She is then brought to the gilded cage, which is the, you know, given the the larger space by the servants, but she's still trapped there. Yeah. And then throughout the movie, the beast keeps saying, I'm damned. I'm cursed. You're going to be cursed. My curse is going to be passed on to my servants and to now you, Bell." for being here there's this obsession with the idea of again crime and and punishment but then this religious overlay of damnation it's not just that you're committing civil crimes but damnation is what you get for crimes against a religion or a spiritual transgression right so what is what are we to infer is the spiritual transgression is that not being hospitable, not being kind. Yeah. Why does he feel that he is being religiously or spiritually punished for his behavior? Perhaps the enchantress is known in the world as being some kind of spiritual entity. I mean, this goes back to Jack's assertion that she is not unlike an Odinic or Zeus-like figure traveling the world and kind of meting out punishment for not following social norms. So those figures, when not taken literally, can symbolize the constraints of a particular culture, the moral and ethical constraints. So he transgressed the moral and ethical constraints of their culture, which would be offering hospitality to travelers, which has been a moral imperative in many cultures of the past, uh, offering that hospitality. And so failing to do so is seen as a major fault of the host. Right. It's also very disrespectful. So there's that. Definitely. So it's the hospitality, right? I mean, that, I, I think that's part of it. Now, Now, the hospitality, when it was disregarded, she was like, you're not even human. I'm going to make you into a beast to reflect what you really are, right? Yeah. And that means that part of humanity is hospitality, right? Or just general kindness, right? The ability community. Or at least the mor the morality of the, the morality of this society or or film world or just enchantress, right? Or or just she has the power to met out punishments and she will be the arbiter of what is acceptable behavior. It's true. But there is, there is some, some sort of double standard there because if hospitality, kindness, and like 
community are what define your like moral fiber as a human, right? At least to a degree, then there's no way the servants should have been turned into cursed people as well. Yeah. I agree because they are the, to some extent, they are the symbols of hospitality, right? I mean, the, the prince is expected to behave in a certain way, but in this type of very hierarchical society, it basically comes down to the different expectations between the classes, right? He was expected to be hospitable to the enchantress, but that would have also meant kind of giving her access to his wealth and his people who were going to tend to her in, in some way. Right. Well, when it comes to society, if you're looking at the classes, she's as low as it gets, right? A woman with magic is already in Europe, not very, not going places, right? And when Maurice goes to Agatha's home, we see that she basically lives in like a dilapidated log in the forest. Yeah, yeah. she's a hermit. An yeah, old, a magical hermit woman. Yeah, an old fallen tree she lives in and she's made it as cozy as she can. Yeah, I mean, it totally yeah. works for her. I mean, probably some amount of magic, you know, I'm sure keeping it cozy, but... Mm -hmm. I mean, if she has the kind of magic that can transform a whole castle, not just the servant's and beings within, but the entire structure. And she made everybody who knew about the prince in that castle in the surrounding countryside forget about them. And created an endless winter. Because she, we, we made a comment during the movie that it, like, just started snowing for no reason. But that was literally part of the curse, is she, that it is an eternal snowstorm around the castle. Yes. My main point with saying all this is that... She has enough power to live anywhere and be anyone she wants to be. She's choosing that life. Definitely. <laughs> she's yeah. also, and she's also choosing to be the arbiter of punishment for transgressing social norms and expectations. So she is, so Agatha exists kind of outside of the usual class structure, of course, because she's this powerful magical being, but she still sees it fit to kind of enforce different social norms amongst others. Right. Mm hmm. Another thing is the prince's servants, right? They're probably considered a higher class than anyone in Bell's village, right? Probably. They're common folk, but they're employed by royalty. And they spend all their time around nobles and serving the royal family. So normally in European societies, that would put you above, like, just being a random commoner, right? Or a peasant, if yeah. You're, yeah, if you're, like, Lumiere, and you're, like, the number one servant of the prince or the king... You have way more influence and status than like some random baker, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't want to nitpick, but you just kind of brought up an interesting point. A co mm -hmm. I, I get the impression that uh, Cogsworth is the head butler. Yeah, that's yeah. the one. And he, I couldn't he, remember his name. He would be the one in charge of everybody, all the servants. Mm -hmm. And then yeah. um, I got the impression that Lumiere is close in rank to him, like you're mm -hmm. saying. 
and that he's probably the prince's personal valet, which yeah. would be the next one down. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But like in uh, they're not quite nobles, but they would probably be treated pretty close to one by most of French society, I'm thinking. And so in the Enchantress's eyes, someone who's an intentional hermit who tests the moral fiber of the rich, she would probably just see the servants as other rich people with like status that also deserve to be tested. That's possible. And maybe she feels the way that they do, like it was kind of partially on them to raise this kid, right? Which again, isn't, that's not a good message. You're not supposed to take that one like it's real. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of why I feel like this movie is unable to provide a clear message about what the actual, like, correct moral choices are, right? I mean, obviously, part of it is to be kind, to see past people's outward appearances. Good messages, Mm -hmm. I would say. But there is also this kind of, for me, very uncomfortable class narrative. And Jack, I think, brings it, uh, highlights it very nicely, saying that the servants would have been seen as having a higher position amongst the peasantry. But the peasantry are kind of, in this film, doing pretty fine. The biggest problem they have is that they are quick to be uh, kind of stirred up to action by this demagogue of Gaston. I just want to interject real quick. You know why they're doing fine? You know why? They don't have to fucking pay fealty or taxes to their local lord because everybody's conveniently forgot about him. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of they like... They pay eggs to Gaston instead. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, in, in lieu of royalty, they've kind of created Gaston as this new kind of nouveau riche character. And I don't understand why they didn't just kind of create a more anarchistic society where everyone just gets along and does just fine. They were still bound and trapped in this mindset of hierarchy. And that is where they go wrong because they're not trying to I mean, Gaston tricks them. He's trying to do this for self-serving purposes. He's trying to lead them against the beast because he wants the glory of it. But the people have no vested interest in it. If anything, by going and fighting this battle and having the beast come back, they're now under servitude to a king again, which is not a great way to be. Yeah. This is foreshadowing from when the French Revolution becomes Napoleonic France. <laughs> I mean, we're we're right there, right? We're getting close to that timeline in this It's true. This, world. this is likely set somewhere between 15 and 1700. I'm thinking 1600. They say something in the movie which kind of dates it in that period. Like, there was a plague that swept through. Probably not the bubonic plague. Right. Maybe it was, though. If so, that would probably set it in mid-1500. No, that was in... um The the first wave was in the mid-1300s. And then the second wave was in the 1700s. There might have been... The major ones. There might have been smaller outbreaks. Oh, I thought it ended around 1400. Like, the late 1400s. There were two big waves. Oh, I see. So maybe not then. So just some random plague. 
you know, killed both their moms. Plenty of plagues back in the day. Yeah, there were plenty. <laughs> very again, something. very very unlike anything yeah. that we're going through today. Not not at all familiar. Not at all relatable. Plagues are bacteria about quarantine. based, and we're dealing with the virus. Yes. Okay. What? Mm-hmm. <laughs> plagues are are actually uh, specific bacteria yes. based uh, sicknesses. I I, yes. I know that yeah. <laughs> For viruses, it's actually called Schmeg. So so <laughs> so you're saying it's not this film was not relatable as a movie about people who were trapped in their home, unable to leave because conditions outside were inhospitable. No, it and it, we're slowly turning into sedentary statuary. It did work. I also wanted to say, like, I was kind of floored by how there's this town that's been magically freed from the constraints of this hierarchical system like Jamie mentioned and yeah they didn't really do anything to redefine social roles and they have very strict gender roles still enforced and that's why one of the biggest reasons that Belle and her father Maurice are cast as outsiders because he did not enforce that. He taught his daughter how to read and write. And, and she is reviled by the populace for it. Yeah. Now, I will say one advancement that Bellstown has that I think kind of puts them ahead of, I mean, I think even modern day societies. They had Ooh. a bath. No. <laughs> hey, nice. No, no. <laughs> Fuck. It was, it was the most important innovation. <laughs> It blew my mind when I saw this in the movie. Everyone probably thinks I'm talking about the washing machine. I'm not. Again, this is something we don't have. I did think that. The baguette sheath <laughs> that Belle has on her belt. Oh! Belle goes to the baker and she gets a baguette and she has a like a scabbard for a sword on her hip that you put a baguette into. And that was it for me. I was like, send me back. Send me back to this town. I'm ready. It's, it's her bread sheath. It's it's beautiful. <laughs> bread pocket. <laughs> Je te do, bread pocket. She just goes around the town. There are people that do like her, you know. They tolerate her, I guess, because she uh, uh, buys from them or something. I don't know. I don't some open-minded people in the town who like her it's not everybody but most of the people seem to hate her it's hard to get a bead on the town i really want to know more about these people it's weird they're stirred to violence so quickly for a cause that is not their own how have we not it's talked old. about the eldritch horror that is all of the servants and what they changed into like there were so many disturbing scenes with their dance numbers and the abilities they had, like, they were flying. Why could they fly? They could levitate plates. They were given the magic of perfect service. <laughs> oh they could God. conjure fireworks and tiny buildings scaled for their size. I was, much like when we watched the Polar Express and the hot chocolate <laughs> scene, I was shaken to my core by these choreographed yes. dance numbers. It was the hot chocolate scene again. <laughs> yeah. So many times when we watched this movie, I was like, what is happening? What is happening right now? Why is anything? The armoire 
which could dress Belle. It's as terrifying <laughs> as it sounds. Could fucking magically pull all of the gold off of all of the ornaments around the environment to weave it into Belle's dress magically. It's just all the gold is coming off of everything in the environment and magically forming itself into these shapes that go onto the dress. What did that? What was happening? Yeah, you. I mean, that was Cogsworth, right? Is <laughs> that an Mag extension of the curse? Mag is the Magneto. <laughs> yeah, Magneto. Yes, you're right. That has you're to be so it. You're so right. <laughs> You're so right. <laughs> Come on, guys. This is just a backdoor prequel to the X-Men. I can't believe I didn't think of it myself. I thought you were maybe going to reference the armoire's face. Face in quotation marks. <laughs> it was Which was is terrible. a series of drapes and curtains that vaguely make up a face that flap aggressively as though it's talking. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and make expressions and emotes, which in like the most nightmarish, uh, like enigmatic way resemble emotion. It was so disturbing. <laughs> it's just, it's, it kind of reminded me of when like a bird puffs up and flaps all its feathers at you all at once. And That's like when she spoke. Not all of the objects in the castle had sentience. It it was so confusing. I mean, I think we just didn't see all of them. But Belle picked up a brush and started talking to it, and the servants were laughing at her like, That's not alive. That's a brush. Now watch me be a magical bird feather duster. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, those could fly too. I liked what you said about the fireplace. <laughs> that the fireplace is just this living uh, servant who's just in excruciating pain the entire time that a fire's in him, but he can't yell or express himself because he's made of stone. Yeah. Mm -hmm. the, there were parts of this movie that broke me kind of similar to Polar Express. I'm glad you guys brought that up. That w It was pretty yes. awful. I'm, I mean, then I'm sorry I brought it up because that was a traumatic experience. All right, guys, we've talked a lot about this movie so far. I think it's time for Evil, Stupid, or Misunderstood. This is Evil, Stupid, or Misunderstood. The part of the show where we take a look at the primary antagonist and determine if they were evil the whole time, or really stupid, or maybe they're just misunderstood? Alright guys, so we've got a big one here. Let's talk about Gaston a little bit more. I think that the biggest evils of this movie are toxic masculinity, which I think is being re-termed as limiting masculinity. I mean, that is one uh, person's term. I like it. That's the term that they use on the YouTube channel Cinema Therapy, which uh, I strongly suggest watching their videos on the Lord of the Rings series, if not more than that. Yeah, I thought that was a better way of phrasing the concept or, or defining the concept. Might re uh, might evoke less knee-jerk reactions from disingenuous respondents. Yes. And also groupthink. 
is the other evil. I think that Gaston is the paragon for a limiting form of masculinity. And Maurice is a great example of a healthy form of masculinity. He's a supportive father and he's not afraid to be himself and to support the autonomy of his daughter and be a, a good role model for others. Yeah, I thought Maurice was a pretty positive character and, you know, he didn't want Belle to be caught up in his mistake and she really screwed the pooch on that one. <laughs> <laughs> it's just screw the pooch has such a different connotation in the in the film Beauty and the Beast. <laughs> Oh, a lot of people have talked about this as a bestiality film. <laughs> However, we're not talking about that right now. No. We're an evil, stupid, and misunderstood. No, we're talking about Gaston limiting masculinity and how he compares to other characters in the film. It's true. I'm going to venture out and say that he maybe he's primarily stupid. That seems to be right? the case, yes. Because his main issues are that he's very proud of himself, right? Yeah. He's very impressive in many ways. He is, definitely. Uh, there's a whole song about how skilled he is in many different fields, right? Of course, we never really see any of those come to fruition. The only thing we see him do is beg for mercy from the beast and then shoot him in the back. He also can spit really hard. <laughs> okay well you got me there yeah he's especially but, uh, good at expectorating yes exactly and he knows that word so <laughs> maybe he has read a book it's possible right? a, but a book about spitting exactly he's proud of himself and that therefore he can't really cope with when things don't go his way and another one of his biggest issues that we mentioned are he's quick to anger and he's the thing that kind of holds him back is that he just kind of feels and reacts, right? He doesn't think about what he does before he does it. And he doesn't care who he hurts. Exactly, including his best friend, LeFou. So I'd say primarily I think he's stupid just because he doesn't consider what he's doing. And he uh, he has no introspection as a person. I think like, he's like equal parts in smaller amounts uh evil and misunderstood too he kind of like has all of the elements yeah i feel like the movie tried to set him up as misunderstood and then somewhere along the line said nah we're just gonna go with classic asshole gaston don't yeah. want to don't want to rock the boat too much and in fact i don't think they rocked the boat at all with this movie mm -mm. yeah i feel like he's primarily stupid and that begat the other two as well, like 50% stupid, 25, 25 for evil and misunderstood. Yeah, something like that. I think that that's a pretty fair assessment. All right. Well, I mean, that was pretty straightforward. I think, <laughs> I think we got it. Why don't we head to the smithy?
Welcome to the Smithy, where we forge a rating for Beauty and the Beast after we each share an epic moment or feature from the film. Chelsea, would you like to give us your epic moment or feature and then give a rating from one to ten magical roses? Oh, sure. And and one did come to me fairly quickly, so that's a blessing. <laughs> um, Mercifully. <laughs> I, I'm probably stealing this from somebody else. But I'm going to have an, my epic moment be during the fight at the end when the mob gets to the castle. And the armoire is fighting three musketeers that are bounding up the steps in the main foyer. and. She just covers them all in all these garlands and streamers and fabrics until they're all in the end. They also have makeup and wigs on, which is confusing. But uh, she's fast. <laughs> they all are dressed up as what uh, typically a woman of the time, like the time period that this fictional movie takes place in would have been wearing dresses, frilly dresses and makeup and wigs. Two of the men scream and run away and are horrified. One of them just smiles coquettishly at the armoire and he seems very pleased with his new getup and he, he struts down the stairs or flounces down the stairs in his dress and he, he's just loving it. So I, 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 think, I think that character might have learned their actual gender identity that day in that moment yeah they're like actually this is great <laughs> and i really liked that moment and that's the same character in the end dance scene that ends up taking lafu's hand and they both smile at each other as they're gonna dance together really? oh yes the, oh that's awesome the uh non-straight romance that this movie really propped itself up on and then proceeded to pretty much gloss over as fast as possible and relegate to the background. Yeah, they they have enough time to clasp hands, look at each other, smile, and then it cuts away really quickly. It, it, it barely gives you any time to be aware that it's happening. <laughs> I am ready for the LeFou and that other character whose name I don't think we ever get spinoff movie. We'll just say Pierre. Pierre's the horse, isn't it? No, that's Philippe. Yeah. Somebody was named Pierre. Right. Maybe it was Crapierre, the living toilet <laughs> that I was thinking so, of. So I guess I kind of snuck two epic moments in there. Um, and I'm going to give epic this character. movie a rating of five out of ten Enchanted Roses. It That's like a solid middle ground. Uh, there are a lot of disturbing messages and uplifting messages and and solid good messages you want to t like come away with that we mentioned throughout the episode so it kind of, that's why it kind of like evens out a little bit um <laughs> uh, and also with the aesthetics it's kind of even because some of it is horrifying and some of it is really cool <laughs> so yeah that's kind of why it gets a middling uh road for me and and also with the story narrative choices, you know, they they did some interesting new things and then they disappointed me in other ways. So there you have it. Nice. Awesome. Respectable. <clears throat> Jack, how about your epic moment or feature and your rating from one to ten Enchanted Roses? 
So that was one epic character, but it was not stolen from me. That my epic <laughs> moment is actually when they're first getting to know each other, kind of early on, right? Yeah. They they have just had kind of a bonding moment where the beast saved Belle and Belle saved the beast in return. And they, you know, despite being on, you know, an uneven power dynamic, they're not in a good place. They don't like each other at this point in time. They start talking about literature, right? And she's like, oh, yeah, as she quotes Shakespeare. And I think he finishes the quote. She's like, oh, you know, Romeo and Juliet or like, no, you know, Shakespeare He's like, oh, yeah, of course, you know, like I'm well educated. Right. And then she's like, oh, uh, my favorite is Romeo and Juliet. And he's like, oh, cringe. <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> Fuck you. Of course I, it is. <laughs> of course it is. Yeah. He's like, he's just like, oh, God, he like he doesn't like her taste in he, books. He literally rolls like, his eyes at her. <laughs> yeah, because. She's used to just being thought of as like a freak for reading in general. And then not only does he know the books that she's talking about, but he's like, oh, fuck your taste in books. <laughs> she's like, what? No. So she can't win she, either way. <laughs> exactly. And she's like, what? What's wrong with it? It's great. It's a it's a perfect story. And he's like, oh, it's just so romancy and uh, gushy. And he like makes gagging sounds. He sticks his tongue out. And I'm like, oh, God, he's such a he's such a memer. Yeah, yeah. I think they were hanging a lampshade on that one. Yeah, I thought that was a pretty funny scene. I like that interaction between the two of them. And that kind of shows like that's the kickoff for when they start realizing they have some stuff in common, like similar interests. But, like, yeah. still have a lot to learn about each other. And that's when he shows her the library. But just that scene of her being like, oh, someone else who knows literature. I hate that book. <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> I, I thought that was pretty good. Yeah. And just, like, the way they act is very goofy. Very funny. As a whole, the film is... Uh, I had such low expectations for this movie. I didn't want to see it, really. I, I liked the original animated one quite a bit. I didn't think it could really go up at all from there. And I heard there were some like new songs and I was like, uh, uh, maybe I'm interested in hearing those, but not exactly. I feel like it didn't need any more songs. Yeah. Right. Like they would be unnecessary. However, I guess, like Jamie said, having low expectations can be the best thing for the <laughs> enjoyment of a film. Yeah. Because. I was actually pretty blown away by this movie. I was like, oh, the piece of shit was made out of gold. <laughs> <laughs> and a lot of the scenes they added, I thought actually added a lot of more interesting aspects to the film. The way they humanized a lot of the characters and kind of expanded on their personalities, I thought was really interesting. Yeah. Even though they didn't really fully develop that in a lot of ways, like we mentioned with Gaston. Uh, the CGI, I thought, was really good, really solid. Uh, I'm going to give the movie an 8 out of 10 swords. Wow. Because even though it had a lot, it needed to improve upon, expand upon, and just kind of like rearrange what scenes it gave screen time to. Yeah. It really was what they were going for. 
right? It lived up to what it was trying to be. The messages were, for the most part, pretty clear. It delivered the vibe that it was trying to deliver. And, uh, yeah, I felt good after watching it. So, and that's kind of what a Disney movie is meant to do, right? Yeah. So, sticking to what it planned to do, but falling short in some of the more intricate aspects of the film, 8 out of 10. That's a solid rating. Yeah. Yeah. What about you, Jamie? What is your epic moment or feature and rating? Well, you know, I've already talked about the baguette sheath. I don't know if I'm going to top that scene. <laughs> I mean, that really just like, I, it blew my mind in so many mm -hmm. ways. And it made me want a pouch specifically for baguettes. A pouch for your baguette. It's so much more practical than carrying it with <laughs> your hands when you're out shopping. Yeah. I, it's just, it was genius. It yeah, was, you don't have to carry your baguette in your hand while you're out and about in public. I mean, because let's be honest, if I was carrying that baguette, I'd be eating it. That baguette wouldn't be making it home. <laughs> no, no okay, now here's the advantage. When you have a baguette pouch, you put one baguette in the pouch, and you get your eating baguette in your hand. That you fill with, with cheese. Well, yeah, yeah, you, you smush the cheese into the baguette, or, I mean, you got two hands. What's your other hand? That's your cheese hand. Baguette hand, cheese hand. Now, do you have a cheese pouch? Yes. The answer is yes. Of course you have a cheese pouch. This is France. This is a classy place. <laughs> um, you know, I was going to, like, talk about another scene or something or try to come up with something. I'm just going with the baguette sheath. That's it. That's my, that's my epic feature Honestly, of the movie. Honestly, I'm, I'm there for it. It's a good look. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, as far as the rating goes, I think I'm going to give this one... Three and a half roses. I'm nice. I'm super glad that Jack enjoyed it. Uh, I think I agree with Chelsea, you know, or I, I I totally see it being a very middling movie. I just found it painfully boring. Oh wow! And I it was like just kind of washing over me, and I I had a hard time following it for some reason. Not like following what was going on, just like they were like jumping around from scene to scene, and I was just like, why are we here now? Why is there no, like, they're building up certain aspects of the backstory and not going into others. I, I thought that they made a lot of poor choices, and it just kind of felt unnecessary. I really wish that instead of doing these remakes, they would do more. I mean, I feel like Maleficent was the, the bar. Yeah. With, like, a new reimagining. Right. Call this movie Beast. Call this movie Belle, whatever. Right. Call it beauty. I don't know. But have it be its own story and have it go in different directions. And let's get some perspective. Let's have it be about the servants. I don't know. And what they go through. And giving them more believable backstories other than we're just happy-go-lucky people who just love to serve our master. No, fuck that. I know. They're cursed by his bullshit. So, yeah. I, I wanted more from it. I enjoyed watching it with you guys. Glad you guys had a better time with it than I did. But I, yeah, I can't say I enjoyed it. So three out of ten roses. That's my final offer. Nice. I love how different all our ratings are. Yeah. Just fantastic. Yeah, that might be one of our widest swings. Mm -hmm. I know. But hey, we hope that you had a ten out of ten roses experience listening to Swords and Satire this week. And if you did... Maybe consider shooting us an email 
at swordsandsatire at gmail.com or hit us up on social media at Swords and Satire and let us know what you thought about Beauty and the Beast 2017. If you have the means, we'd love it if you would go over to patreon.com slash swordsandsatire and join our community of patrons today. You'd be supporting the show and you would have access to tons of cool bonus content that we put up on there like voting rights on the movies that we watch each month and exclusive content for our patrons like outtakes episodes and special episodes which are now our rewriting history and if you like swords and satire and you're a fan of the community you can help by expanding it tell your friends about the show discuss our thoughts on the episode and come up with your own and while you're at it, you can also spread word by leaving a review on iTunes or whatever podcast service you're using to listen to the show. It helps us out a lot, and it helps us get new listeners. It's great. If you say nice things, I, uh, maybe I won't cry. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> maybe. And until next time, Hail, Hail Crom!